And now it's time for the Wild Side News with your host, Sidney Wildsmith. As Charles Darwin's name keeps coming up as the debate over the teaching of intelligent design in science classes crescendos, it may be a good time to take a look at some of our ape ancestors. Just how smart are they? Can they actually talk? Do they plan and figure? Are they capable of using tools? These two are questions that are being debated. And in a moment, we bring you a special edition of the Wild Side News as we go in-depth with one of the world's leading primate researchers. You will get some very powerful answers to these questions and more when your Voice of the Earth continues here on the Wild Side News. To the Wild Side News. And now, Sydney Wildsmith. Science. Sometimes it's hard to know how exactly to react to science when it manifests in its purest forms. Certainly, that is part of what is inspiring the debate over Darwin's theory of evolution and now the movement by intelligent design advocates who are mounting campaigns to force its being taught in science classrooms in our public schools. It is a worthwhile debate. And now, as the president weighs in with his idea that he thinks it should be included in science classrooms, the issue is moving into the mainstream of media mayhem. Today, we offer another take on science as we go in-depth into the subject of animal intelligence with one of the world's leading primatologists, Dr. Dwayne Rumbaugh. His recent book, Intelligence of Apes and Other Rational Beings, speaks to the power of science, as you will see to move through the tough issues and emerge into a new expanded awareness that I'm sure you will find interesting. Sometimes it feels as if I'm caught between two worlds. It's no secret that I have a passion for promoting the concept that animals are exceptional beings with great abilities and wonder. And a comforting truth is that almost anyone who has a pet, particularly a dog or a reasonable cat or a larger bird like a parrot, will tell you in no uncertain terms that, yes, animals are really intelligent. Take a moment to talk with a dog owner about their pet, and you will soon hear a series of amazing stories of their sensitivity, cleverness, loyalty, and intelligence. But the other side of this story is that science, for a long time, has held to the belief, much growing from the legacy of Darwin and evolution, that animals could not have real intelligence because, well, for example, in order to think and reason they would have to have the use of words. And we all know they don't use words. And when we assign human characteristics to animal behavior, we are anthropomorphizing. Well, today's feature is a wonderful story of science and the quest for truth. It's a story of the evolution of scientific understanding, where pure science explores the question of animal intelligence. There is a giant opportunity for all of us to learn what happens when science, pure science, holds to the quest. This just may be one of the most significant stories presented so far on the Wild Side News, and I invite you all to take this journey of discovery. You will be glad you did. 
We're talking with Dr. Dwayne M. Rumbaugh, who co-authored the book Intelligence of Apes and Other Rational Beings with Dr. David A. Washburn. The book is published by Yale University Press. Dr. Rumbaugh, welcome to the Wild Side News. Thank you. You're working with the Great Ape Trust, and I certainly would like to start out with you giving a little heads up on what's happening with the Great Ape Trust, because this is ultimately where what we're going to talk about today has led you. Well, the Great Ape Trust is a, a great adventure. Uh, we are uh, trying to organize a new uh, entity that will give a new and effective message to the world about the importance of our world, of nature, uh, using the Great Apes really as our point of focus. Uh, the Great Apes are so closely related to us, so much alike, uh, in their mentality, though different uh, somewhat in their morphology from us, that uh, we really need to put emphasis on on conserving them in nature, so that their their culture, their modes of living, will be available forever for subsequent generations to study and to learn from. We can conserve them in in uh, captivity, but we really deprive ourselves, if that's our only access to them, to learning about how it is that they live in nature. And that's a very important book for us to continue reading. I believe that, as a matter of fact, that's what your research has led to, is that conclusion that that, that is the importance that they be allowed to exist in their natural environments for reasons that we'll get into. How did you come to be so involved with researching intelligence in apes? It's a long and interesting story. Um, as a boy, I uh, loved animals, particularly dogs. I worked on the farm during World War II and uh, pretty much lost my love of animals, and then animals uh, on the farm are uh, basically uh, food products and uh, uh, beasts of labor, at least they were then. We were still using horses a lot. And uh, then when I went to college and to graduate school in psychology, I came to be intrigued with the process of learning and learning theories. Learning theories then emphasized reinforcement, that the reinforcement of responses really in some way bonded responses and behavior to stimuli or to environmental events and that organisms basically were empty uh, and uh, without rational processes. And there's a lot of power uh, to be uh, exercised through the use of reinforcement or through manipulating the consequences of behaviors. But I, I felt at the time that there still was something incomplete in that the magnificent work of uh, Curler uh, and uh, Yerkes were uh, viewed pretty much as points of intrigue, but nothing to be taken too seriously other than ways of thinking in the course of history. Now, both Curler and Yerkes were of the opinion that the great apes were different and that they had the capacity of insight of basic reasoning processes. And uh, this stood in contrast to the radical behavioral thinking of theorists of that time, uh, earlier Thorndike and Watson, and then 
uh, Skinner and Hull and uh, in measure Coleman, though he was far more rational in his perspective of animals' behavior than were the others. But at any rate, I got my uh, uh, master's degree in experimental psychology from Kent State and then my Ph.D. from University of Colorado at Boulder, uh, studying with uh, students of K.W. Spence of the University of Iowa. Spence was the main uh, disciple of Clark Hull, who of Yale University uh, advanced uh, the concept of uh, the development of habit strength and uh, stimulus response connections, uh, reinforcement of responses through need reduction, and so on. Uh, with my uh, PhD in hand, I went to work with uh, San Diego State College, as it was then called, in 1954. And various uh, interesting events of history uh, led me to uh, apply for uh, a direct commission in the United States Navy, which I got in 1957 or 58, and then was on duty at the Naval Research Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland, right alongside of the Naval Hospital there. And that summer, I worked with Lieutenant... Bob Vos on a project to put some kind of biological experiment in space. Hmm. That introduced me to work with small primates, squirrel monkeys and cotton top uh, marmosets. Uh, I decided that I was at the ripe old age of 28, too old to convert from a college professorial life to that of the United States Navy, so I didn't go for a career in the Navy. I went back to my teaching job and went to the San Diego Zoo not far away with a new perspective, namely of wanting to better understand the uh, the great apes and the the evolution, the emergence of intelligence in the primate forms that they had in their beautiful collection of primates, ranging from prosimians to new world monkeys, old world monkeys, the lesser apes, and the great apes. I took my class down there frequently to look at the primates and almost invariably invited Dr. George Purnell, an anthropologist and curator of the mammals at the zoo. I invited him to talk with us about the primates, and he was just great always. When he would move from the prosimians and the monkeys to the lesser apes and then to the great apes, something of an ascending scale of an approximation of what we are. He would always say, as he would point to the great apes, he said, well, now these are thinking animals. And I always thought to myself, oh, yeah, yeah, George, they're thinking animals, all right. Animals can't think. They don't have language. They're not human. It's all conditioned responses. It's all based on reinforcement. <laughs> but I never said that to him out of respect. You know, scientists are almost uh, confined to that to, to that response. Yes, response. Yes, yes, we had indeed been strongly reinforced. In that. The concept that animals, you know, any time that someone might suggest, you might suggest that animals have feelings or awareness, then the charge of anthropomorphizing oh, would yeah. hit you, and that that's a killer. Uh, that, oh that, yeah, that, that was a killer then, and uh, it's less of a killer now. Uh, but to it, I always like to reply, well. We anthropomorphize with one another all the time as humans. 
I, I don't really know that you are a rational being. I don't know that really that I'm talking with uh, uh, anybody who is other than uh, uh, some kind of a biological invention from outer space. Some people claim I, that is the case with me at, at times, yeah. <laughs> I assume, we each assume, that we are rational beings, uh, that we are sentient, that we have logic, that uh, this and that and the other. But uh, that's really, really on uh, on faith and and uh, really groundless assumptions. We take we make the bold assumption that what people say is really what they mean, and that is risky. Uh, many times we say what we don't mean. This morning I've, I've spent a lot of time communicating with a friend, clarifying a, a, a point of psychology that I was trying to make yesterday. And I've had a lot of fun doing it with him and, and he with me. It's it's part of our professional exchange. Well, getting back to this concept of your, your beginnings in the research into intelligence, and I really appreciate it. This book is a very honest a story of of your emergence into your beliefs about animal intelligence, and it's really to me it's fascinating because at that time, as you began to work uh, at the San Diego Zoo, you approached this from almost a Skinnerian, and you'll, you'll be better at defining the approach. But you really felt that you had to use very extremely controlled uh, testing, and so you began with apes in laboratories. Yes, and I did, but it was really much more of a uh Harlovian um, approach at that point, I I had uh, become disinterested in, in Hull's reinforcement perspective about 1956 as I worked with rats. I just finally gave up concluding that it wasn't going to work with me, that the rats were always learning more than I did. I could not predict accurately the outcome of an experiment. Hmm. But uh, in 1949, Harry Harlow at the University of Wisconsin came forth with his phenomenon of learning set, learning how to learn. Hmm. And uh, it was brilliant work in that he showed with, with rhesus macaque monkeys, with macaque monkeys, not all of which were rhesus, that they could be transformed, if you would, from stimulus response reinforcement learners to one-trial insightful learners, with a one-trial insightful learning being one of the criteria... For uh, for really uh, curlers and Yerkes, uh, insightful learning uh, for their creativity, uh, creativity in their behaviors. So this intrigued me, and I set about to study the formation of learning sets in primates from prosimians through the great apes. And that took ten years to do. In fact, it continued well beyond there. But some very interesting things. Mm -hmm came forth from there. The, the animals taught me some things that just couldn't possibly be true hmm. in how they would develop uh, learning sets. And if I may risk translating the basic lesson into words, and it's difficult always to do, it is that as the various primate forms learned increasing amounts in terms of accuracy of choices correct, in a situation. They differed markedly in terms of how they could transfer that learning to subsequent situations in which there was some change. 
the situation to which they transferred was similar to and yet different from the one in which they learned. And, and this remarkable phenomenon was first seen by work with I and my colleague at the San Diego Zoo when I was on sabbatical leave and took a look at, at the results with squirrel monkeys. On the one hand, a very diminutive New World monkey compared to that of the great apes with the same procedures. Namely, that as the amount of their learning increased, the squirrel monkeys invariably did worse on their transfer tests. Hmm. Learning more for them cost them in terms of their accuracy of performance in the transfer tests. To the contrary, with the great apes, the more they knew, the more probable it was that they would do not really just as well. They would do better on the transfer test than what they had done in the original learning situation. Let me just uh, g- give a little little background too, because I think uh, painting a picture here would help help the listeners really appreciate what the, the type of type of uh, experience you you worked in a, in a laboratory environment where uh, you created a the uh, lexographs that were little boxes that that could help the monkeys and apes make choices. And so this the first some of the first levels was just to prove that an animal could recognize different shapes and forms and yeah. I mean, it was very fundamental yeah. uh, but because it was science you had to start with fundamentals and so you were really just trying to suggest in the initial uh research that animals could actually recognize anything. And well, it was known that they could recognize things but what wasn't known was that as they as they learned how to learn as they developed if you will proficiency in learning tasks of a given type it wasn't known that they really differed all that much Hmm. Uh, and my study was designed to see whether or not they did Hmm. and they did differ profoundly Hmm. and the larger the primate brain and here we're talking about about species not individuals the better they were at transferring what they had learned from one situation to another Hmm. and there was this stark contrast that the great apes could be significantly better in transferring what they've learned, whereas for the small-brained primates, they were significantly worse in their transfer tests. Help people understand what that means, this yes, concept of transfer. I was transfer. going to say what we mean by that. Let me use an example here to everyday life. When we uh, drive cars uh, of different makes, there is fundamentally positive transfer from one make to another. We know that the key will go in some slot generally to the right of the steering wheel. We know that there is a shifting mechanism of some kind, generally, though with the new hybrids, I guess that that's going out, I don't know. We know that there is a brake that is foot controlled and that it's with the right foot, not the left foot and so on, and that there's an accelerator. If it weren't that cars are fundamentally designed the same way, it would be impossible for us to slip into a new car and to drive it without a lot of lessons. Now, as we made a shift in cars from having the gear shift mechanism on the floor to on the steering wheel, there was a lot of negative transfer. People weren't used to finding first gear when the when the shifting mechanism was on the was on the uh, steering wheel, when it became automatic, that 
became really no problem. But uh, sometimes the uh, the transfer was negative, and thus I remember very definitely, and I'm sure everybody does, who who learned how to drive to drive in cars that had a clutch on the floor and a brake on the floor, and we had to press the clutch in before we shifted gears. When the clutch was taken out of the car and we wanted to shift gears, we found our left foot flailing around down yeah. there for a pedal that just wasn't there. Well, that's negative transfer. Mm-hmm. Then we had to shift our, mechan- our think- attention to, well, how is it now that we shift gears? Mm-hmm. Sometimes transfer can be so negative that it takes lives. Uh, when I was in the Naval Reserves, uh, I knew of a pilot who, who creamed in with his uh, fighter jet one weekend. And the, the reason that it happened uh, in, in the post-accident uh, sh- analysis was that the flap mechanism was where the throttle had been on the previous plane that he had really been an accomplished flyer in and with. And uh, as he made his approach to landing, he, he needed more power. Instead, he applied more flaps, and that uh, cost him uh, the uh, support that he had, and he, he stalled and crashed in. So positive and negative transfer are, are basic to our lives. Uh, One of the things I, I think would be interesting is to, is to kind of, as I say, you started out with very basic research, just trying to to indicate that these animals had some level of comprehension. But yes. then th- your, your, your book certainly chronicles the way in which, as you experimented you know, over years with the different animals, yes. that you began to, first of all, begin to prove, uh, as well as sense, that there was a lot more going on. And we can kind yes. of take this to the next step. With, for example, some people have said, well, do, can animals use tools? Or can animals actually understand language? Or do they have a language? Yes. These, if, obviously, if they were just beast machines, the, the theory was they, yes. they couldn't or yes. they wouldn't. So tell us about some of the, the uh, breakthroughs for you as you, as you move yes. through the years yes. that would lead to, su- to your own beliefs about okay. those things. Mm-hmm. Just one more comment on the positive-negative transfer because it's absolutely basic here. Mm-hmm. If, if an organism, especially a non-human organism, can transfer what it learns in one situation to another to a profound advantage, doing better in it than what it had done in the original learning situation, that strongly suggests that it has some comprehension of what it has learned, mm-hmm. that it's learned principles and not specifics. Mm-hmm. And it's by not just reacting. If an animal mm-hmm. does less well in the transfer test mm-hmm. than what it did in the original learning, it strongly suggests that it's learned specifics and really can't generalize what it's learned in in any kind of a rational or principled way. Mm-hmm. Now that that is absolutely basic, I believe, to the emergence of of intelligence and to language and to tool use and to every other manifestation that we view as inventive. We know that animals can use tools. They can create tools. Through the work of Sue Savage Rumbaugh, we know that Kanzi, a bonobo uh, ape, a form of chimpanzee, can make stone tools that are of the uh, kind that early humans made, uh, to cut meat, to 
skin animals to do this and that. And he learned it by imitation. That is really not just imitation. He learned it by observing Professor Nick Toth and Kathy Schick from Indiana University uh, making tools out of flint. He, he developed all of the finesse, not by the specifics of watching them, but by starting with what he could see them do. And then his own experience taught him how to really make a fine flint tool. Now, that's, that is profound for an animal to do. Neither Sue nor anybody else other than Nick Toth thought that, uh, that an ape might make a stone tool like that. That's extraordinary. But they can. They can do all kinds of things. They can learn some of the aspects of language. Now, there's a big quarrel in the field there has been for the past half century. Well, you know, it really isn't language because humans can do this and they can do that. Well, I would hope that they can. You know, apes' brains are, are about the third of the size of ours, and they are apes, they're not humans. But the, but the really exciting thing is that there is some overlap in our language capabilities and what the great apes can learn not from being taught as though they were beast machines, but by being reared as though they're something they're not, namely being reared in part as though they were a child. You know, why don't we take a short break, and when we come back, let's, let's start to go into those realms, because those become so fascinating and really take us into the next level. So when we come back, we'll continue our discussion with Dr. Rumbaugh. Side news. And now, Sydney Wildsmith. And now, part two in our quest into the minds of our nearest relatives, the monkeys, apes, and great apes. Are animals capable of complex thoughts? Can they plan and reason? It depends on who you talk to. We continue following the scientific approach to understand the nature of the wild creatures when your voice of the earth continues here on the Wild Side News. continue our discussion with Dr. Rumbaugh, who is the author of Intelligence of Apes and Other Rational Beings, along with David Washburn, Dr. David Washburn. Uh, both gentlemen work with the Great Ape Trust in Iowa, and we've been talking about Dr. Rumbaugh's research on the Great Apes, starting professionally for him in San Diego, and he worked with a whole variety of different species to try to suggest that these different species have different capacities to to really learn and then, then transfer this knowledge, which would be an in, a definitive indicator that they're actually able to hold thoughts or whatever whatever the term may be, whatever the concept is, and then apply this, which would indicate some level of intelligence. And uh, 
one of the uh, areas that you were just about ready to get into before the break was some of the experiments, fascinating experiments, that you began to uh, bring a, a young, um, I forget if this was a chimpanzee or a bonobo, uh, and have them grow up in association with a young child. Am I heading in the right direction here? Well, we didn't have them grow up with a child, but we, but they were reared as though they were a human child. Okay, um, it, let's let's have you talk about that because that's such that's such a fascinating part of the the, the next stage in in your research. I, I have to uh, uh, start on my answer here with the Lana chimpanzee project that I started in 1971 Great. Great. In, in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, then I was with the Yerkes Primate Center, and the director was adamant that I uh, do research on language acquisition with apes, and I didn't want to do it. <clears throat> I felt there was really nothing there in language, despite the fact I had learned what I had about the learning abilities of the great apes in contrast to monkeys. I didn't feel that, that they had any genuine capacity for language. That said, I yielded and I started, and I was shocked, delightfully shocked, to see how Lana Chimpanzee learned the, the word lexigrams on the keyboard and learned how to organize them, and then on her own initiative, uh, transfer what she had learned to novel challenges, to new situations, to deal with problems that otherwise she could not solve. And I, I knew then that we had broached the language domain with the chimpanzee. And at that point then, uh, Sue Savage, as she was then, joined the project and uh, started in emphasizing more so uh, socialization and uh, chimpanzee to chimpanzee communication. And she demonstrated that the chimpanzees could learn to use their symbols uh, with one another to uh, get tools, to get foods, to get help, to go places and so on that otherwise they could not tell one another to do. It was the social coordination of learned symbols. Briefly, so because uh, many of the people haven't read the book and don't understand the, the precise nature of the research, talk about the, the briefly the lexigrams and how yes. they were used and how that helped you understand that they were communicating between each other. Yes, as I contemplated in 1970 how to go about uh, language research with the apes, I, I knew that I did not want to use American Sign Language for the Deaf as others had used and used successfully because you can't really capture objectively what happens other than by film. We didn't have uh, even uh, taped video at the time. It was all a very expensive process. So. I, I, after a lot of thought, I finally thought, well, let's, de let's develop a keyboard. And then I started thinking in terms of a typewriter, which had the, a lot of problems in that it was ridiculous to think of having an ape spell a word when they didn't even know what an a, a word was. And then I thought, well, why don't we just have each word be a key? or to turn around for each key to be a word, fine. Uh, but we would have to have a way of moving those keys around lest the animals just learn where you punch to get a banana, for example. Mm -hmm. I have to learn something that would differentiate one key from another. And we came up with the idea of having a geometric pattern 
uh, that Ernst von Blausersfeld named Alexagram uh, subsequently, and that was a nice label for it. But the lexagrams are basically a variety of geometric symbols. They could each stand for an action like eating or giving or going or a food or a drink or a place or uh, a state, for example, music or slides or what have you. And uh, <clears throat> we developed a, a, a beautiful keyboard on the basis that, yes, uh, I would say it was anthropomorphically designed. I asked myself, if I were an ape in this situation, what would I like to see on the lexagram keyboard? So we designed it accordingly, and Lana agreed once she was in there, yeah, this is a, this is a cool thing, and, uh, and learned very rapidly from it. Why don't you briefly ex also explain actually the layout so that people can see this, because that will help them understand okay. how you're able to observe. Yes, well, the layout was that, that the initial keyboard uh, was a five-by-five five matrix of keys, five columns and five rows, and each key had a different lexagram on it, and each key was backlighted so as to be attractive, and each key, when pushed, uh, became even brighter so that one could look to keep track of what it was that they had punched on the keyboard. And then in addition, in a row of little projectors overhead, a facsimile of each uh, lexagram, as it was depressed in turn, came up and was left there until such time as the uh, sentence uh, effort was ended by the pressing of a period key. So uh, it's it's like, uh, if, if you would, looking at an elevator control panel, and you, you know you want to go to floors 9, 7, 18, and so on. And they are punched. You know where the elevator is going to go to. But in addition now, we had not numbers. We had distinctive geometric forms, and we had the forms color-coded. That is, all foods were red, for example, all people and animals' names were violet, and so on. Mm -hmm. And uh, the computer, a PDP-8, which had less memory than our, our wristwatches, uh, <coughs> uh, was programmed so as to monitor the sequence with which those lexagrams were selected. For example, if, if Lana wanted a banana, she would have to type into the computer through use of her word lexagram keyboard, please machine give piece of banana. Or if she wanted music, she would have to, to type out, please machine make music. Please machine make window open. Please machine make slide. Please Tim move into room. Tim was her technician trainer, if you would. And so she learned a lot of different strings uh, sentence strings like that that had to be organized in a specific way else the computer would not acknowledge it as a valid request or and, statement. And just as a brief, this this was uh, learned through the process of rewarding with favorite treats and different things. Mm -hmm. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. And we, and she learned six different colors and the names of six, of six different objects like bowl, ball, cup, and so on. And uh, then we tested her, for example, can you, with two objects present, let's say a shoe and a bowl, 
with the shoe being purple and the bowl being orange, we uh, we ask her, what's the name of this that is orange? And she would have to select the object which is orange, namely the bowl in her attentional field, and then say, bowl, them, bowl name of this that's orange. Now, that's getting pretty swift, isn't it? Now, would you actually, yes, it is. Would you ask them verbally those questions? No, no. She would be asked through Tim using his, his own lexigram okay. keyboard. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. And she would, read, she would read his request through another row of projectors above the one that, that uh, produced her own lexigram. Mm-hmm. So it was like Tim send, sending a, a visual note to her, what's the name of this that's orange? And then she would read that and then respond, shoe name of this or bowl name of this that's orange. Now, we were heading in the direction of, of your kind of some of your initial aha moments where you began to go, my gosh, they are actually communicating. Let's, uh, let's explore some of that. The first day of excitement was when, when uh, Tim was standing outside of Lana's plexiglass chamber, uh, about an eight-by-eight-foot chamber, and uh, he was drinking a Coca-Cola, and she knew the name of Coke, and she liked Coca-Cola, and she went to the keyboard and made this statement. Question, Lana, drink this out of room. Well, Tim was staggered, and he said yes and opened the door for her, and she came out, and he gave her a bit of his Coke. And then he put her back in, and this was repeated two or three times. And in excitement, he called me and told me about it, and I said, no, Tim, that's wonderful, but we know that Lana knows what Coca-Cola is. So next time you do this, uh, ask her what quotes this quotes is. Mm-hmm. And so he bought another Coke, stood outside of her room, and uh, she again said, question, uh, Lana drank this out of room. And Tim, through use of his keyboard, uh, asked her, drink what out of room and uh, finally after just two or three minor efforts Lana said Lana drink coke out of room hmm. now that's uh, that was remarkable and we, we were we were pleased that there was apparently effective two-way communication through use of her lexigram keyboard and there were a number of others for example infrequently but nonetheless now and then her her vending machine uh, for a given food would stick. And uh, on uh, a given day, for example, Lana was asking the machine, please, machine, give a piece of bread, over and over and over, and each time the machine would give her a, a good bite of bread. Uh, but then one day she, <coughs> she, was, she asked, please, Beverly, move behind room. And... Uh, Beverly moved behind the room, which uh, people were instructed to do for other purposes. And then Lana uh, again asked, please machine, give a piece of bread, please machine, give a piece of bread. And she pointed to the machine, which she could see through the plastic, and uh, thereby directed Beverly's attention to it. And it wasn't working. Hmm. So Beverly rectified the problem. And then Lana got her bread over and over again. Well, there was a wonderful example of where some food was hidden outside, 
uh, and using the lexicon and behaviors, uh, one of one of your subjects was able to uh, take one of the researchers and direct him to that to, to discover this object that was kind of stuck in the ground or hit, hidden out of the grasses. Oh, yes. Which I thought was so, that to me was an, a real yes. indicator of very complex things. Yes, yes. You're referring to the work with, with uh, Pansy, Jim yes. Pansy. Yes, uh-huh. uh huh. Yeah, Pansy was co reared with Pan Benicia, a bonobo, uh, to see whether the spontaneous comprehension of human speech by Kanzi was a function of his being a bonobo or whether it was a function of the kind of rearing that he had. So uh, Sue and I ran a study along with others with uh, Pansy and Pan Benicia, rearing them from very shortly after birth. And uh, to our surprise, Pansy, the common chimpanzee, uh, came to understand human speech as did uh, the bonobo Pan Benicia. In other words, comprehension of human speech can occur spontaneously as it does in a human child, that is, without formal training. Uh, that's an important discovery, an important breakthrough. They learn to comprehend not just words as commands at all, but really in terms of their specific meanings and their specific meanings as used in combinations, as in requests. Well, Pansy, with this rich background, was faced with a, a new challenge with another investigator, Charles Menzel. And he took a, a piece of food, uh, a kind that she uh, really liked, a, a favorite fruit, took it around out, outside, outside the limits of her outdoor caging, and hid it in the forest floor, and then just left. And Pansy knew that the food was there but uh, didn't do anything about it immediately. But about ten minutes later, he recruited uh, uh, Shelley Williams, who didn't know that the food had been hidden, to attend to what she, Pansy, was saying. And Pansy went through a number of efforts to, to tell her that there was something hidden outdoors. Shelley surmised that by, by her pointing and, and by her covering her eyes with her hands, indicating something was hidden. And then uh, she touched the key for the name of the food that was outside and somehow conveyed to Shelley that it was convey it was hiding under sticks because she too used this lexagram for sticks on the keyboard. And and then as Shelley said to her, Oh, there's something outdoors that's hidden and you want me to go out and get it for you words to that effect. And Pansy got all excited and yes then gestured to her to go around the outside of the building as she raced up into the tunnel uh, to go outdoors herself. Once outside, then Pansy very accurately pointed to the, to the spot where she had seen this food, a kiwi, hidden. And the closer that, that Shelley got to it, the more excited Pansy got until she was right uh, really by the spot, and then Pansy cooled down and just looked. So she got the kiwi and then brought it around back into the building and gave it to Pansy. Well, this was a remarkable, remarkable uh, extension of Pansy's communication abilities from from things that she had learned by her social rearing with Sue and her associates, and in measure by me. 
that she transferred them to a totally new situation years later in a different situation. Hmm. Now that's intelligent and it is specific. Yes. There's another example, by the way. Oh, the, there, the, there are hundreds and I hundreds know. and hundreds of, yeah. her, hmm. uh, of her instances in which she has done this kind of thing hmm. in, in systematic studies being conducted by Charles Menzel. Well, carry on. I'd like to know kind of, I mean, I'm trying to give some examples that I found astonishing. One that I found very entertaining, but also very enlightening. Uh, And I I don't recall which animal you'll be able to uh, help me out with this. But this is a a similar type of thing where somehow in the process of trying to help keep the cages clean, they trained the animals to urinate in some sort of little little, uh, container. And Uh, and they were rewarded with M&Ms. Yeah. But going back great... to Lana chimpanzee now again in the early 70s, yeah. uh, but that was very, very uh, interesting. Uh, in her, uh, in her uh, chamber, uh, Lana had uh, a cage that she could go into, a small metal cage which was perched up off of the ground, off of the bottom of the chamber, which also was plexiglass. And uh, uh, she... Uh, uh, was being taught by Tim Gill to pee in the pan <laughs> underneath the grill of that cage. Uh, and he was giving her an M&M candy, which she dearly loved, uh, every time she would give a contribution of urine to that pan. And she got the idea real quickly, you know, pee a little bit, get an M&M, pee a little bit, get an M&M. <laughs> well, by straightforward conditioning, theory or perspective, it should be that she would urinate with more and more vigor for longer and longer periods of time, not Lana. What she learned was you pee just a little bit and get an M&M, pee just a little bit and get an M&M, and uh, get more more M&Ms that way. Well, that's interesting in its own right. But then eventually, even with the best of bladder control, she would run out of urine. And when she did run out of urine the first time, still in this training situation, what did she do? She turned around and spat into the pan. Uh, she had she had learned more than just to urinate in the pan. What she learned was the basic principle, well, maybe it's getting liquid in the pan mm-hmm. that is really the task. That's very complex. Very complex. Mm-hmm. And even with rhesus macaques, we have observed that. If I may let me... T- now, sure, go ahead. A rhesus macaque is, apart from humans, the, uh, of the genus that is macaca, the most successful uh, non-human primate form in the world in terms of reproduction and distribution. They are relatively large-bodied and relatively large-brained, but not to the degree that the great apes are. And <clears throat> we had uh, the challenge of teaching a macaque monkey to use its foot to control an interactive task on a uh, computer's monitor. Right. In other words, I saw the picture of this, so it helped my listeners. The, right. the animal would have to actually hang on to a ring, and right. then in order to uh, move a joystick, which also was a very amazing thing that yeah. I didn't know that they could do, to use yeah. a joystick to, to manipulate uh, on a computer screen an image to get the reward, he had to use his feet. So he was yeah, using. We had, we had learned that every rhesus monkey we worked with could learn to use a joystick to do these complex tasks of a big variety that included all kinds of complex demands like predicting things and remembering things and 
being specific in the movements. They, they are great uh, users of joysticks. And uh, it was Sue in, in working with, with apes that first demonstrated this. Uh, they learned observationally from her, but interestingly, no rhesus monkey has learned observationally how to use the, key, the joystick. They've mm-hmm. always had to be conditioned um, through use of specific uh, training procedures. Now, the rhesus had to hang onto these rings in order to turn on the system. And with the rings being overhead, then they had only their foot to activate the joystick. They had not had any prior training with the joystick, ever. But they discovered in the situation that with their foot, there was uh, a uh, movement of the joystick and a movement of the cursor on the screen, just as we use on our desktop computers. And that that the task was to move that cursor, this was after substantial training, to, to make contact with a, a moving target on the screen. Hmm. And the target moved erratically, so it took challenge, it was a challenging thing for the rhesus to control the movement of that cursor to hit that target, but they eventually did it. Uh, after this rhesus macaque monkey got as good with its foot as what other monkeys had become with their hands in this task, then this monkey was given a special test, a special day of opportunity. The rings were no longer there. The rhesus no longer had to pull down on these rings in order to uh, make the system work. And what what would it do? Now, from a, a reinforcement learning perspective, the rhesus monkey should have used its foot. That's what it had been, quotes, reinforced quotes for doing all the way along the line over the course of weeks and months. But it did not. <laughs> it used its hand right off. And that was a surprise. No one had predicted that. But more important than that, no one had predicted that the rhesus would be better in using its hand with the joystick than it had ever been with its foot. In other words, the rhesus monkey had learned not the conditioned response of using its foot and the joystick. It had learned about the task. It had learned that the task was to move the cursor to impact with the moving target and and it somehow knew that it could do that better right off with its hand than what it had ever done with its foot. <clears throat> that is the transferring of learning not by specific muscular response, not by specific behavior patterning, but by principle, by some kind of a rational behavioral process. It would also, from my perspective, indicate a, a very real and powerful body awareness, uh, uh, sure. an awareness of it, of who it was as a being. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I, that, it, to, to make that transference within its own body, to realize that, well, I can do this, but I could probably do this better with my hand. Yes. How, you know, it's intelligent. That is intelligence. That's correct. That is suggesting a pretty, pretty complex, well, re- really very effective 
use of intelligence. I often think about people who are trying to open a box, for example. You watch sure. people are trying to open something, and, and I, I'm always intrigued by the fact that they'll take it, and they'll go through a whole series of behaviors. They'll pry and do this and that, whatever else. Maybe they can't figure it out. And after a while, they start to perhaps bang it on things. Uh, we just go through these processes of trying to figure out what will work, and finally right. we, we find a way. And this animal was able to do a very similar Type, That's right. type of uh, type of experience. You know, That's right. Animals can think. They can come to learn how to think. They don't just think. Period. Their thinking ability rests upon an enriched, appropriate kind of early rearing experience. And social rearing is the best context within which to do that, unless one is talking about learning about human talents and skills like human speech comprehension of human speech clearly then they have to be reared around humans but no ape will learn to comprehend human speech unless they are reared around human speech and hear human speech in a way that is informative to them by way of understanding what's happening what has happened what it is that they're interested in and so on dr rimbaugh we're going to take a short break and when we come back we're going to talk about Kanza because they're talking about transference and language and intelligence. That's a story that uh, really began to uh, develop a, a huge aha moment uh, in your research. So when we return, we'll explore some of the stories of Kanza and beyond. Side news. And now, Sydney Wildsmith. So just how far will this search for the truth about intelligence and apes go? As we understand that reasoning and deeper consciousness exist, how close will science come in agreeing with the common wisdom that people sense around the world that animals, yes, are very complex and rich with expressive possibilities? And what does it mean if the creatures are paying attention to their world in ways we may not have been aware of. We find out when we return with your Voice of the Earth here on the Wild Side News. So we continue our conversation with Dr. Duane Rumbaugh, who is uh, a man who has spent much of his life, his uh, professional career, researching uh, intelligence in apes and other rational beings and has written a book called Intelligence of Apes and Other Rational Beings along with Dr. David Washburn. And the book is published by Yale University Press. And Dr. Rumbaugh is now working in a very fascinating place that I hope to uh, visit sometime in the near future, and that is the Great Ape Trust in Iowa, and we'll talk about that before we end, about what, what some of your dreams and visions are in terms of how to take what we're talking about now 
and really expanded into the future. We've been talking about, in particular, uh, the demonstration of complex intelligence and thinking and whatever it is, and I'd like to actually explore that a little bit, what you think uh, is actually happening in that processing. I don't know if we can know uh, because it's another species, but it would be fun to hear, hear your thoughts. But one of the, uh, in terms of transference, one of the most amazing stories in the book is the story of, of Kanza, who uh, was, uh, I believe Kanza was a bonobo, is that correct? Kanzi is a bonobo, yes. and a bonobo is a is uh, genetically a chimpanzee, but it is so different from chimpanzees as generally known that they are increasingly called bonobos and not chimpanzees. Mm-hmm. So there was a unique situation uh, in terms of Kanza and her mother and and the rearing that also it seems to me led to an extraordinary aha moment for you in yes. your research. Uh, Kanzi was uh, born at the Yerkes Field Station to a uh, female named Matata. And uh, Matata was uh, assigned to our laboratory for Sue to do language research with. And uh, she was setting about to teach Matata uh, language, that is, words, through use of the lexigram keyboard, as she had done successfully with two chimpanzees, Sherman and Fancy, and as we had done with Lana Chimpanzee earlier. Uh, Matata did not learn well. Uh, we did not import Matata from the field, but another agency had, and then had transferred her to us for really the work that we're doing. Uh, Matata was estimated to be about six years of age when she was brought in from the Congo. And she just did not learn uh, <clears throat> well the uh, lexigrams. It was as though her intelligence had been directed to life in the field, and uh, that we had uh, that she had passed the the age during which she could easily learn the kinds of things that her offspring learned, namely how to use things around the laboratory and so on. As she was worked with. Uh, she had this infant, Kanzi, with her that indeed wasn't biologically hers. She had stolen her from <laughs> another female, Latrell, and refused to give her back. And because she, was, because she Matata, was lactating with another baby, she, she could feed it and did. She raised two babies. Well, Matata never learned her lexigrams reliably, and once she learned one day, she would forget the next. During all of these a long, long months of daily work with Matata. Kanzi just was a developing baby, bouncing off of the walls, climbing on Matata's head, stealing her food, but no training was given to him. But he was there to observe each session and did observe furtively, if not more reliably than what anybody thought. But it was just observational learning opportunity that he had. When Kanzi was uh, uh, about two and a half years of age. Matata was taken out to the Yerkes Field Station to be bred once again, to have another baby. And Kanzi, for the first time then, was separated from her. And after looking around for her a lot, he settled down very quickly because he loved Sue and the other people. And they took him in to start working with him in his training at the keyboard. And much to their surprise, 
he gave evidence right off that he knew not only what they had tried to teach Matata that she hadn't learned, but he had learned more. Hmm. He would pick up an apple and then punch the key for, say, Chase, and then he would run with the apple uh, with his visuals, his, with his facial expression clearly indicating that he wanted them to chase him for the apple. And he could uh, he could ask for things in the refrigerator by name. And because of this, Sue made the very wise decision that he would not be trained as they were attempting to train Matata, but rather that they would just rear him around the laboratory, explaining to him what was going on and using the keyboard in a matter manner coordinated with what they said. And uh, he learned a lot. He learned about language through observing this and working as he would. It was through his social rearing that he learned not only the lexigrams with their meanings, but the appropriate use of them. And when he was about four and a half years of age, people kept saying to Sue, hey, he's understanding English, he's understanding English. Well, she and I both knew that this was supposed to be impossible. We, we had been uh, under the impression that some other apes had learned to comprehend the specifics of human speech only to find that they could not evidence that when they were given controlled tests. But that said, Kanzi was given a a test of uh, word comprehension by uh, means of a headphone where he could hear the, what was the word was and his he then was given the, the essentials of a multiple choice test and he would be shown two or three lexigrams in, in a situation that only he could see or pictures of two or three things and he then had to make a choice among those and then he was scored whether he was correct or not. Well, he comprehended 150 words, hmm. which was a shock. And then it became clear that he was understanding novel sentences of, of request. Like if uh, Sue were to ask somebody, Liz, would you go over and turn on the lights? Kanzi would whip over to the appropriate light switch and flip it on. And he learned a he, he gave a lot of, of indications like that, that he was comprehending sentences. So a test was devised. Uh, by Sue, uh, in which he was given uh, 440 sentences of re novel requests, novel in the sense that he had never heard the sentences before, no one had modeled the sentences for him. Uh, they were new. Now, to be sure, he knew the words which were used in the sentences, but he had not been trained. He had had no model for carrying out these novel sentences of request. Uh, he was about seven years of age by the time the testing was done, and at that time there was uh, a, uh, a wonderful technician by the name of Janine Murphy who had her own family, and one of her girls' names was Aaliyah. Aaliyah was a precocious two-year-old girl, and she was tested uh, in the same way that Kanzi was. Now, Aaliyah had been given every chance to learn the lexigrams and how to comprehend human speech just as normal child would otherwise. The lexigram learning was 
done at the laboratory with Janine walking around with the keyboard and using it with her her daughter much as she later on in the day would do so with with Kanji. Well, the fascinating thing was that 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 Kanji was uh, really a little bit better than Aaliyah in in filling out and uh, fulfilling the requests of these novel sentences on the first presentation of them. For example, if he he was asked as indeed he was, Kanzi, with a whole array of objects out in front of him, like eight or ten objects, one of which was a snake and one of which was a dog, he would ask, can you make the doggy bite the snake? And he very promptly picked up this toy doggy and opened its mouth, picked up this toy snake, which both of these were new at the time, these objects, though he knew the meanings of dogs and snakes from real dogs and real snakes. He picked up the snake then and jabbed it in, jammed it into the dog's mouth and then closed the dog's mouth over it. Now that is a very literal fulfilling of, may, of the request, can you make the doggy bite the snake? When asked later after other requests, you know, can you make the snake bite the doggy? The emphasis was on the snake being brought in contact with the dog, but not in the dog's mouth. And in other sentences, he, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of different sentences, he, he displayed that he could comprehend and carry them out. Like, Kanzi, can you put the Coke in the, in the refrigerator? Kanzi, can you put the Coke in the microwave? Can you put the keys in the microwave? Can you get the keys that are in the re- in the microwave? Can you get the ball that's outdoors, even though there was a ball right in front of him? And so on. Indicating that he understood not only what he was to do, but what he was to do with what relative to a place and what relative to one another. And thus he could ask, can you pour the jam in the jelly, in, in the milk? And he would do so. Or he could be asked, can you pour the milk in the jelly or in the jam? And he, he would do it that way around. So he had, if you will, uh, an understanding and, and an ability to decode the syntax of these novel sentences of request to understand them specifically, not generally. Mm-hmm. There was one story that I found very entertaining, uh, and that was when you uh, asked him if he could put, I believe it was a melon, in a potty. Is yes. that is that correct? It's just, yes. that, that's just it, I, the visual of that is is yes. that's a great story. Why don't uh, you share that? Uh, that uh, there are two stories about the potty I want to tell. One was and Sue asked him, Kanzi, can you put the melon in the potty? Well, he had to select out the melon from a variety of objects in front of him, each of which had a name and then take it over to the potty and put it in it. When Sue asked that, he looked at her through a one-way vision mirror. He couldn't see Sue. He could only hear her. He looked quizzically, like, you can't really mean this, Sue. <laughs> but she, she repeated, and he carried it over and dutifully put it in the potty. After several other sentences, incidentally, it was a clean potty, potty, right. a potty used only for this testing. Yes. After several other sentences of request, he was asked, Kanzi, can you get the potty, can you get the melon that's in the potty? Or can you get the melon out of the potty? I think it was, can you get the melon that's in the potty? Mm-hmm. Well, again, with another melon present, 
So he had to make a choice which melon. He went over to the potty and picked out the melon and sniffed it and then brought it over to where Sue was. See, there's, there's so many levels of, of apparent intelligence going on. I'm, I'm prepared to say it is intelligence. First of all, that he would be able to make another level of perception, and that is what? You wanted me to take food and stick it in a place where food shouldn't go. Yes, yes. Uh, yes. I mean, do you come to a similar conclusion about that based on that experience? Yes, yes yeah. Yeah, it is, but he looked so quizzically at it, you just can't really mean this. Another favorite about the potty is that he was asked, by Sue, again behind the one-way vision mirror, can you put the paint in the potty? And he picked up the clay instead and put it in the potty. Hmm. Well, it was the right action but the wrong object. And so she repeated, can you put the paint in the potty? And he, he did nothing except perhaps to pat on the potty like I did it. And then she repeated it again, can you put the paint in the potty? And he he dragged the the porta potty over to the one way vision glass and tipped it so that Sue could see that he had put something in the potty. That it was the paint and not the clay was clearly an error of comprehension on his part. But he was doing this as though to show it. Don't you know I have done it? And here it is. <laughs> that's great. That's great. That's that's fabulous. You know, one of the, to then push this forward, and boy, we could, uh, I wish we had about 10 hours here, because I'd love to hear, so, the details are, are where the wonder really happens, when people hear the stories about what these animals do, but uh, from a scientific perspective, I think this is one of the points that you really feel is critical to be made, and that is that in the process of trying, going back to the 50s, uh, the process of trying to discover if animals had intelligence was so controlled by this by the the testing environment that when you take an animal that isn't reared in a natural yeah. environment and you put it into a sterile place yeah. and it has very limited experience uh, that may definitively affect its capacity yeah. to be intelligent and so that really brings us to one of your conclusions which is the fact that in reality, in terms of testing animal intelligence to do so properly, we really need to give these animals every chance to be a normal being and and then uh, begin to test what they're really capable of. You've already proven that they're very capable of many different things, but now to be fair, if I'm, I'm, I'm summarizing properly, we really need to give these animals the opportunity to live with a full matrix of stimulus because apparently... That's extremely important That's in, right. in terms of them fulfilling their intelligence. That's right. We say in the vernacular, if one asks a stupid question of an animal, you'll get a stupid answer. Yeah, there you go. Uh, but if you, if you give them a, a, rich, a rich history uh, of experience and learning opportunities, then you can see how smart they really are. <clears throat> and it's like the rhesus monkey using its hand rather than its foot. If we hadn't given it that, that test, we never would have known this. And so it's so important to see what animals can do beyond the constraints of their original training or learning situation, just as it is with children. No question of it. Uh, that rhesus monkeys could use a joystick task interactively on a computer was thought to be impossible. Uh, I, I thought it was impossible as I started. I just knew that if they could, though, if I were wrong, that it would be a real bonanza. 
and the changing in the test apparatus from manual to automatic told us so much about the intelligence of the rhesus macaque that there are really two psychologies of the rhesus macaque, one pre-joystick technology and one post-joystick mm -hmm. technology. Mm -hmm. Technology and the way that we ans ask questions is really all important. But there's also, you know, something to be said just by being a good observer, of being a lucky participant in what animals can do. And if I may, I'd like to tell you a true account with Pansy, Chimpanzee. Sure. Pansy at the time was about maybe four years of age. And uh, with Pan Benicia, uh, they had been co-reared. Uh, <clears throat> Sue and I took them for a ride in a new used Jeep that I had bought. <clears throat> I, I love Jeeps, and this Jeep in particular I liked because the the plastic dash was without blemish. They're sponge padded, and the plastic on it, black, was just perfect, unflawed. <clears throat> we went for a ride out in the rough country around the lab, stopped to get out and look around. The chimpanzees and the bonobo were on their own for a little bit, and then we decided to get back in the Jeep and to start up again. Well, Pansy had been riding right next to me. And when I got into the Jeep, Sue and the bonobo Pansy had already entered from the passenger side, and Pansy had entered from my side. When I sat down and looked forward, I saw the distinct mark of chimpanzee teeth marks on the dash and a bit of saliva. And I knew right away that somebody had bit into that dash. And I asked somewhat forcibly of Sue, who did this? And she said, Pansy did it. As she came in the Jeep, you have to watch her. Well, I hadn't watched her closely enough. And I looked at Pansy and pointed at the bite marks on the dash, and I said, did you do this, Pansy? She just looked, right me, looked at me right in the eyes. And I said, I'm really ashamed of you, Pansy. I never thought you would do such a thing to my Jeep. <laughs> and, and she, without breaking eye contact, sitting along my right side, with her left hand, she took my right hand and opened it up, and then with her right hand closed, put it into my right hand, put something in my hand, and then forcibly closed my fingers around that thing that she put in my right hand and then pushed my right hand forcibly back to my chest, as though, here, take it. And then she looked ahead in the Jeep as though, let's get going. I opened my hand to find a little flower, hmm. the only flower that she had. She had picked it when she was out of the Jeep just a minute or so earlier. I didn't know that she had the flower. It was hers. Yet, in the situation where she knew I was distressed with her, she gave it to me as though in a peacemaking gesture. Hmm. But then having given it to me, she indicated by her behavior, she was saying, you know, okay, let it go, Dwayne. Let's go ahead now. Put it in gear. Let's go. <laughs> it was a wonderful experience in which Pansy and I had an exchange a high-level communicative exchange. She didn't speak to me in words, 
but she certainly spoke loudly to me through her actions, through her detailed actions, and the affect that she had in those. It's a fascinating story of of uh, abstract thinking and also feelings. I mean, a, a personal sense of of uh, responsibility, sensitivity. Uh, and I have a couple of questions in that because uh, I, I love the science side of this. I'm just curious if flowers, if somehow flowers in her training had been associated with kindness or love or some sort of uh, compassion in the past. Do you know if that if that may have been the case? If it was, it was incidental. Mm-hmm. Um, she hadn't been taught to give flowers to mm-hmm. anybody, mm-hmm. Uh, especially in a peacemaking gest- mm-hmm. gesture that just hadn't been done. Mm-hmm. She put pieces of her past experience together very intelligently, mm-hmm. sizing up in this situation that it probably would be helpful. Mm. That's the way I read her behavior. Why do you think she bit the dash? Was she aware? Was it perhaps some... I'm, we're speculating here. Sure. But, um, we I speculate mean, about humans, too, don't we? We sure do all the time about motivations and whatever else. And fair enough. And, and, and thank, thank goodness we're, we're prepared to start really talking about these things. I'm just curious if perhaps she, there could have even been some sense of jealousy that you were showing such admiration for this Jeep or perhaps you had caressed the dash and... <laughs> And talked about how beautiful it was, and that she was jealous. Well, uh, I don't think so. I, yeah, okay. I think that I mean, chimpanzees at that age are like little kids, and that they like to put things in their mouths. Yeah. They like to taste things. They like to feel the dimensions of it. And uh, I, I imagine that having felt it with her hand as she got in, she wanted to see how firm it was and bit it. They do bite <laughs> things. Yeah, that's 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 exactly right. A, a, a terrific story. Well, so now this begs a whole series of questions. First of all, why don't you give me and the audience here a sense of your state of the art in terms of where you see uh, uh, intelli- intelligence in apes and bonobos, and yes. and and then as also let's expand this out to the rest of the animal world to whatever degree we can. Just uh, give us your thoughts. Well, first of all, contrary to what Descartes declared a long time ago in the absence of data, really pre-science, that animals are beast machines and have no rationality, no feeling, no sentience. That's wrong. We know that they do. And it's best now that we realize that this Cartesian philosophy is wrong and look at animals in a new perspective. They are not human and we are not they. But they nonetheless have many of our attributes which surely we inherited in measure from them. What we are has a natural history and that doesn't make us any less human, doesn't make us any less important. But it does help tell us that we are not creatures apart in this world. There is continuity of mentality. There is continuity of intelligence. There is continuity of feelings of social sentience, of sensitivities, of politics, of interactions, of learning of symbols, of learning to communicate through means of symbols. All of these things that we have thought to be uniquely human are shared in measure with other animals. The great apes in particular have this, but we also know that other large-brained mammals, particularly elephants and dolphins and surely whales, have high intelligence and can learn these kinds of things if we but work with them 
in in uh, the proper way, and not ways that have been used in the past that emphasized reinforcement. We we should come to value animals as really teachers. Most of what we have learned, we have learned from the apes, not from what we have taught them. They have taken what we have learned and have gone well beyond what we taught them. And it's in that that we have learned about their intelligence and their rationality. And that reinforcement is really a passe term in my view. Does, does what we do and the consequences thereof impact upon what we do next time? <clears throat> no question of that. The consequences of behavior have lasting effects. But they have that through, if you will, rewards, not through the bonding of specific responses to specific stimuli as was espoused up through mid-20th century. And it's still believed by a lot of people that, that animals are fundamentally stimulus response creatures. We have far more to learn about animals than what we have learned to date. We have learned an appreciation of animals in the last 50 years that is remarkable one that I believe is is still uh, quite disciplined and yet very appreciative of what it is that they are and what it is that they can teach us. We need to conserve them. We need to conserve the tiger. We need to conserve the great apes in particular, as our founders said, because they talk back. If we don't succeed in, in keeping the great apes uh, viable in their natural habitats, I believe, and an increasing number of people believe, that what that says is that we are such poor stewards of nature and of this world that we're going to be not too far behind in terms of our own demise. We cannot go on consuming this world as we have been consuming it, particularly in the last hundred years. We have to be more disciplined. We have to learn to save nature as well as to use nature and we have to learn how to conserve the beautiful the beautiful wildlife which is here once we lose it it's gone forever once we lose the natural homes for those great apes those are gone forever they will not be reconstituted in our time professor wilson of harvard university says that we're in a stage of cataclysmic extinction of large mammals in the world and that they will not recover from it. He sounded the bell of warning. Let's, with the great apes, take now serious steps to conserve them through education, through research, through sanctuary. And that's what we at the Great Ape Trust are about. And we want to join arms and energies with other groups around the world who are oriented in the same way. We need everybody's help, and we ask for the help of individuals and of organizations with their time and their wishes and their support and their money uh, in order to succeed in this. In just a moment, I'm going to uh, we'll close a, a bit, and I'd like to talk about what you hope to do uh, in the future through the Great Aid Trust. But here's some personal questions I, I would have based on this, and it's been a wonderful conversation, and I so much appreciate the fact that you have laid the groundwork for proving scientifically, which I think is so important, that these animals do have intelligence and many levels of uh, perception and awareness, feelings, empathy. Here would be question number one. As you've looked into 
you had time to live with these creatures, as you tried to look inside their mind to understand how they're perceiving the world, can you give us some sort of uh, perspective on that? That is, as they look out, what is it that they're experiencing? As the great apes look at us and the world about them, they see essentially what we see. They are very sentient. They're very mindful of what they see. They remember. They structure the world not too unlike the way that we do. If we have them living in boring, unexciting, unchallenging situations, they suffer from that just as our own kind does when they are incarcerated. We have to keep many of the great apes in captivity. They are here. There is no nature to which we can return them and expect them to survive. That nature is being destroyed right now. And only when that changes might we meaningfully, rationally think in terms of reintroducing them into the field, humanely reintroducing them into the field. Otherwise, they're just going to die from that. As, as I look into the eyes of apes, I always feel like I'm looking at the universe. Some of those eyes are so bright and informative. Some of those eyes are just so brilliant, you can't help but feel you're looking back into the history of the world and the universe beyond it. There are other eyes one can look into that are dull, and indeed I'm sure that the, that the organism, be it human or animal, that, that looks out at the world with dull eyes, looks out with despondence and uh, chagrin. We have to work to change the eyes of everybody, animal and human alike, to uh, being bright and optimistic and forward-looking. One uh, thing I'm curious about, too, uh, to take this a step further, and that is that the animals that literally are in their natural environments right now and are witnessing in every sense of the word, they're their world being destroyed around them. Absolutely. They, I have to believe, based on the types, the, the level of our conversation, and the, to suggest that these animals are very aware, that they're very aware as well about how their Absolutely. world is being destroyed. Absolutely. And that they have an awareness and that this could affect them in ways that I don't believe we're, we're prepared to understand. No. We, we've had a very, very sobering report from a Japanese colleague recently back from Mamba in the Congo, the only one of the good places where the bonobos have been. There were four groups there that the Japanese had, had followed for like 50 years. But now with the armies going through there and forcing people to tell where the bonobos were, they have killed off these the army has killed off or has otherwise dispersed the bonobos to the point that now there's only one group there of only 20 bonobos instead of four groups of several hundred. Mm -hmm. And they forced one of, the, one of the trackers of the bonobos in the village of Wamba uh, to tell them where the bonobos were, and he wouldn't tell them. And they hit him with a, uh, with a knife and... Uh, injured him with their fists and their rifle butts. I mean, it, it, he wouldn't tell them. But notwithstanding, somehow those bonobos had been dispersed to the wind or, worse than that, killed. We don't know. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's a great 
a tragedy, and I have no doubt but what within that culture of bonobos they now have this history to look back upon and that their their social behavior and their behavior in the forest will be forever changed. Yes. If they can make it is the question. These populations are cut down so much in numbers that, that their viability is, becomes very vulnerable. Now we're going to switch this over to a positive side because this is also within this is the is the wonder yes. and the beauty of what we're what we're really talking about here, and that is um, it also makes me wonder as people head out into their neighbor if we assume and we and 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 you and I and many most people are beginning to certainly agree with this that these animals are very aware you know of their surroundings when you walk into your neighborhood you know you literally your your backyard or your street. And you realize that there's much more going on with these creatures, that they have a sense yeah. of time. They have their own, however it may be uh, expressed, feelings and awareness and sensitivity and connection. I mean, you know, when you're when you in a neighborhood, you can become familiar with the, the jays or the crows or yeah. the birds you neighborhood, and they recognize you yeah. very often. There's, there's a connection going on there. Yeah. And I guess what I'd, I'd, I'd like to really imagine is that as this awareness that these animals are extremely complex not just beast machines that it enriches our life to realize what we're missing when we're not aware of 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 really the extraordinary capability of of our animal friends around us to be our friends and to form a community and that it it's not just birds and wild critters and us you said it as well if not better than i might have uh, it is the case that uh, without a natural world, without the animals, without the birds, and without a close relationship with them, it's going to become a very, very sterile, not-so-nice world, and one in which we miss ever so much what it is that animals give us by way of richness in their behavior uh, and uh, through manifestations of their own intelligences. I certainly encourage people to take this uh, this discussion and head out and, and sense, perhaps, as they look at the wild creatures around them in their backyards or forests or wherever, that there may be a lot more going on. They they will gain from that experience yes. tremendously. Conservation should conservation through ex- appreciation should begin at home. Yes. Now, briefly... So with all of this, now the Great Ape Trust is looking at some, some new expansion and, and really a dream of, of your facility. Tell us what your plans are, uh, because it really, uh, when people visit the website at greatapetrust.org, they certainly uh, can begin to see the vision, but share that with us. Our, our founder and benefactor, Ted Townsend, leads us in terms of our mission that we have formulated together sanctuary, research, education, conservation. We want to give sanctuary, honorable sanctuary, to use his term, to all of the great apes, be they in the wild or in captivity. They should not be killed off and exploited as they have been. We can accomplish our goal, we believe, through research by learning about these apes and by teaching of what it is that we've learned about the apes through various educational avenues. We want very much to be interactive with school children, college students, with the professional organizations to the end of having people become literate about the great apes, sensitive about them. As one of my colleagues here says, 
the people of Des Moines have probably become more literate as a city about the great apes than any other city in the world. Mm. They're very interested in what we're doing, and, and they believe in what we're doing. We, we uh, need to have conservation, uh, both here uh, in this country with the great ape populations we have and in other countries that have captive populations, but the emphasis should be greater to the degree that it can be for conservation of them in their natural habitats. As, as uh, at least primatologists know, primates in captivity, as magnificent as they are, are, are not complete. It is notwithstanding true that we can learn and need to learn uh, about the great apes that are in captivity. We don't bring great apes into captivity to study them. They have been brought in, and they're here. They've re they're reproducing, and we're studying to learn about them to the end of helping to conserve them through sanctuary, through research, through education. It seems uh, as if one of your missions is to really give researchers like yourselves and others the opportunity to explore and, and study these animals in a much more natural setting, which is the purpose of much of our discussion today, uh, that in order for us to really appreciate their intelligence and who, they, who and what they really are, we need to do this in a much more natural setting. And it seems the, the vision of the... We don't have small cages here in which the apes are kept. That's correct. And They're maintained so, in groups. And the groups have a chance to move around and to restructure their groups as they wish. We're building outdoor areas into which they can go. They'll have several acres of outdoor uh, grounds on which to move very shortly. In the meanwhile, they have two that they can get out into year-round. And uh, be it uh, the heartland of Iowa and be it Des Moines specifically, uh, we have what we believe to be a very, very good, a very excellent uh, set of facilities for housing the apes that are ours uh, to be stewards of, and we hope to have all four of the great ape genera, not just the bonobos and the orangutans that we have now, but also chimpanzees and gorillas uh, to help emphasize to the world the magnificence of this array of creatures so much like us. I believe you're also uh, planning to... Uh encourage uh, individuals and, and, and small groups to visit the facility in the future? Yes, in the future is the key there. Right now we're able to have a few small groups come in and some individuals, but we're not open yet for uh, a large public visitation. Our future contains what we're going to call a primatarium, a place where people can have more intimate experiences with a few apes, can learn about the history of research with them, can learn about what it is that they can do that is so marvelous to learn about their plight in the field and to work with us, us, us and others to uh, help conserve them. That's the Great Ape Trust. You can learn more about that at greatapetrust.org. Dr. Rumbaugh, we could go on forever, but I just, I just want to personally thank you for your work and for this conversation uh, and for, bringing, for proving to the world <laughs> scientifically that there's a lot more going on than we may be aware of. Dr. Rumbaugh, thanks so much for adding your voice to the Wild Side News. You're very kind, and thank you for this opportunity. It appears science and common sense are coming to the same place. And with this knowledge, we gain in our own intelligence. Perhaps the ultimate expression of this is that we are holding back our own awareness of a truth that bridges the gap between the intelligent design and scientific strongholds.
In a word, the wonder. In another, the mystery. And in a final shot, the truth may be the most wonderful mystery of all. This is Sidney Wildsmith saying adios until we meet again next Thursday or anytime on the archives when your voice of the earth returns here on the Wild Side News. <laughs>